to all lords, spiritual and temporal, and all other our subjects whatsoever to whom these presents shall come, greeting. Exactly one year on from Boris Johnson's general election win, and the year since Alexander Lebedev's dazzling celebrity-filled 60th birthday party, I, Evgeny Lord Lebedev, and his son Evgeny is taking part in a very different, more formal celebration. I solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors according to law. Dressed in a crimson velvet robe trimmed with white fur made from red squirrels, Evgeny Lebedev takes an oath to the Queen. Later, standing tall in the ornate gilded chamber of the House of Lords, Evgeny posed for a photo and uploaded it to Instagram. He captioned it, Muzik, or Russian peasant, among the noblemen. And he added emojis of a bear and a crown. Lord Rodomir's wife, Claudia, commented on the photo, My sweet lord. Just over 30 years since Alexander Lebedev arrived in Kensington to work undercover as a KGB officer, and only 14 years since Evgeny was launched into society and a glittering party at Altor, he had been given a seat in Britain's upper house of parliament. Grotesque. It's done nothing even by the normal standards of the Conservative Party to justify peerages. No, I just thought it was ludicrous, but it was sort of part of the projectile. Well, not surprised, but amazed. His role as the Baron of Siberia is, I think, the moment when Britons jump the shark. If you're not familiar with the phrase, jumping the shark, it's usually used to describe a TV show or fad that has overreached itself and lost all credibility. It's just embarrassing, to be honest. I mean, you try and imagine that in, in America, right? I mean, America obviously has plenty of problems, but it's just how cheap Britain is. If you look at how much money it takes to buy an American politician, it's a lot of money. Whereas in this country, you know, it's like nothing. It's just everything is so cheap and for sale. Other voices, particularly those in the security world, have been even more critical. One lord involved in official intelligence told me, peers weren't at all happy, I think you'll find, with Mr. Lebedev's arrival. The Lord of Siberia, the son of a KGB agent turned oligarch with a seat for life in the upper house of parliament by the age of 41. An almost unbelievable turn of events. And one that isn't really about Evgeny Lebedev, but about Britain. One of the really genius things about this country, I feel, is the way its establishment appears to be exclusive, but is in fact open. Its openness to new people and new money is how it survives. It's why its ancient institutions, even its aristocracy, aren't as moribund as those in other European countries. Why they continue to wield power and influence. But that openness can be a problem. It can become willful blindness. Britain welcomed Russian money when Kremlin agents committed murders on its own soil and continued to welcome its money when the murders continued and the annexations began. I think that up until the war, it was very different. And I often, when I was 
talking, having some meetings, or just doing some speeches in London, I often felt like a clown, you know, saying like, oh, do this, do that. It shouldn't be possible that all this money is being stolen in Russia. People are being terrorized for reporting about these crimes. And then these people just go to board the plane, land somewhere in Farnborough, get a taxi to their fancy London flats and continue to live like nothing happened. It was only when Russia invaded Ukraine that it became impossible for Britain to keep looking away. And now the country finds itself at a fork in the road. It can continue with the same model, moving from Russia to another source of funds. Or it can change. For good. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and you're listening to Londongrad. How the Lebedevs partied their way to power. Boris Johnson's priorities as the newly elected Prime Minister were more money for the NHS, being tougher on crime, building post-Brexit Britain, and personally nominating Evgeny for a life peerage. We know that Evgeny's nomination went in early because documents I acquired through an FOI show officials at the Cabinet Office were chasing Evgeny for his details by the first week of February. That is, just eight weeks after Boris Johnson's election. Nominations go to the House of Lords Appointments Commission, which is a group of cross-party peers that can vet but not veto nominees. When the Commission received Evgeny's form, it sent it out for vetting, as normal procedure dictates. But there was something not quite normal about Evgeny's case. The vetting report wasn't ready for the Commission's first meeting of the year. The report finally got to the Commission in time for its next meeting, on the 17th of March 2020, between 1 and 3pm in Committee Room 2 in the Lords. And the reason for its delay became clear. The vetting report contained information relayed by MI5 and MI6 via the Cabinet Office that a peerage for Evgeny could pose a national security risk because of his father's KGB past. And there was more. An FOI request I sent to the Metropolitan Police, which the Commission typically asks to check whether nominees have a criminal record, reveals that the police force supplied the Commission with information about Evgeny that it got from the security services. That information, like everything else in Evgeny's vetting report, was redacted or completely exempt from release to the public because of national security and personal privacy concerns. Just let that sink in for a moment. Some secrecy is necessary for good government. Most sensible people wouldn't argue with that. But how can it be right that, in a so-called shining beacon of democracy, I can't find out why a man who's been flagged as a security risk has been given real power and control over our lives? How can it be right that a core part of one of the world's oldest parliamentary systems is uncharted, or that so much public resource is devoted to concealing matters of public interest? The Appointments Commission itself is almost completely opaque. It publishes annual reports, 
every three years. It publishes meeting minutes with a month lag, and that contain no meaningful information. It hasn't published any FOI responses in over four years, and the responses it has published show it routinely rejects requests. Here's what else we've been able to glean about Evgeny's case. The commissioner, spooked by Evgeny's vetting report, wrote to the prime minister to advise him against the nomination and recommend an alternative. Boris Johnson met Evgeny at his private residence at Downing Street, just two days later. We don't know what they discussed. In fact, we only found out Evgeny was there because it was leaked out of the cabinet office. Boris Johnson's meeting register only says he met Lebedev Holdings, the family company. When I asked for more details, I was told no records were kept, as the meeting was social. Social? Really? Remember that this was right at the start of the COVID pandemic. Britain was moving fast into a series of lockdowns. It is absolutely vital that we follow the advice about staying at home. On the day Boris Johnson met Evgeny, he gave one of his COVID press conferences behind a lectern at Downing Street. Avoiding unnecessary contact, work from home if you possibly can. Wash your hands. And it's by this combination of ruthless, determined, collective action that we will succeed. Avoid unnecessary contact, he said. Collective action. But here's what he did after meeting Evgeny. Told his officials at the cabinet office that the security advice was anti-Russianism. The officials recalled that Boris Johnson began working hard to overrule the advice. They were shocked not just about Evgeny's unsuitability for a peerage, but that the Prime Minister considered it a priority at the start, no less, of a global pandemic. But for reasons that remain unclear, he persisted and succeeded. The security advice was softened and sent back to the Commission by June as a fait accompli. And so, reluctantly, the Commissioner signed off on Evgeny's appointment. With a caveat. In their confirmation letter, they called on Boris Johnson to consider the Russia report prepared by Dominic Greaves' parliamentary committee and implement its recommendations. The government was still blocking its publication. One does scratch one's head a little bit and say, what is it in this report or about the report? But the real question is, how was the security advice about Evgeny watered down? Sources say the argument that peers don't get access to official secrets was used, so Evgeny wouldn't be able to see anything very sensitive as a peer, and that the real issue was Alexander Lebedev, not his son. The problem with that argument, of course, is that Alexander's the source of all Evgeny's money. They were at this time both directors of the Lebedev Foundation, the UK company they used to throw money around. And the problem for the Lebedevs is that their money seems to be running out. 
The first indication that the Lebedevs weren't liquid came in 2019, when they sold a third of the Evening Standard and of the Independent. The sale was so controversial that the buyer's identity was hidden through a number of shell companies. When the buyer was revealed to be a Saudi Arabian national who fronts for Faisal bin Salman al Saud, brother to the Crown Prince, the government launched an inquiry into the deal. It was concerned that the Saudi link would affect the news agendas of the papers. But the courts blocked the inquiry because the government raised its concerns too late. The sale went ahead. Just a few months later, in May 2020, another indication of the Lebedev's cash problem. We noticed that the Lebedevs put their castle in Umbria on the market for 13 million euros. My, my reason for telling you 11 is quite firm. But as we found out when we called the agent, its price has been knocked down. Because the guide price is kind of crazy and overly inflated, whereas this is priced based on the two interests we've had to date to try and get a move on rather than play those games. I see. So, uh, I mean, the wiggle room would be, would be appreciated, but again, you know, no, no, it, well, it all it, it all comes down to whether furniture, what type of furniture, is it take your toothbrush and leave, or is it we don't need any of the furniture because there's quite a lot of prominent art in there, personal items. There are certain tapestries, there are certain Roman busks, there are certain items of <coughs> bespoke furniture which are relatively sentimental. Of course, the seller is a single party, I, I take it. It's just, just him. It's held as a corporate hospitality vehicle, not a hotel, a corporate hospitality vehicle. So it can either be sold as a hospitality... The Lebedevs needed the money even more when the pandemic hit. It affected the Evening Standard badly, robbed of its commuter audience. The Lebedevs extended a shareholder loan of £20 million to keep the newspaper going during the summer. By autumn, it had burned through more than a third of that cash. And so the need for money grew. In November... Evgeny auctioned his extensive wine collection. I've seen the sale list. There was a case of 1989 Chateau Margaux that went for £3,800. And there was a bottle of Muscadet that sold for £16. The whole collection raised a grand total of just over £145,000. And then the stud house, the grand pile near Hampton Court Palace. The title register, which I bought for £3 from the land registry, reveals that Evgeny borrowed money against the property from Deutsche Bank in the same month of his wine auction. The title register lists Evgeny Lebedev as the proprietor of Stadhaus, but the Lebedevs were initially more discreet. They had bought the lease on Stadhaus using a shell company called Arden Investments Limited, incorporated in the Bahamas. But shell companies are really a British product. It was a British lawyer in the British Virgin Islands, one of the last remnants of the empire, who invented shell companies. The idea was to help American companies avoid comparatively high corporate taxes. But the complete secrecy these shells provided and the low cost of their incorporation meant their popularity quickly spread. Initially, it was just used by Americans and then used by drug cartels from South America and then used by Hong Kong Chinese business people who were concerned about the potential handover of Hong Kong back to Chinese control and then just by anyone. This is Oliver Bullough, 
a journalist and author whose latest book is about Britain. It's called Butler to the World. The more I thought about it, the more it seemed like the perfect parallel for Britain's position in the world these days is this sort of provider of corruption services to anyone that wants them. We move money efficiently and profitably and with low regulations and low taxes. You know, we can resolve business deals. We have legal services who will do that for you. We have defamation and reputation protection. So if a journalist is writing about you, you know, our lawyers will make the journalists uh, or business rivals or whoever shut up. So those are the obvious ones. But then, you know, we have political services. We will welcome people to this country, give them a strong position in society, sell them property. And there's more niche stuff too, revealing just how Britain organised itself to draw in foreign money. An absolutely fascinating discovery of, for me over the last few weeks is the fact that all super yacht captains are British. You know, there was this fascinating investigation by Alexei Navalny, the Russian anti-corruption activist, that this super yacht, the Scheherazade, which looks like it may belong to Vladimir Putin, where the entire crew were employees of the Federal Security Guard Service that guard the Kremlin, apart from the captain, who is British, because they're always British. But as Oliver explains, Britain's success is also down to the services that it doesn't provide. There were other places that moved money on behalf of you know, Russian oligarchs. A lot moved through Switzerland, a lot moved through the US. But both of those countries investigated and prosecuted the enablers that did this. So the specific position that London played was the place that just had this free-for-all. If you're an oligarch, you can move your money through London, put it in London, buy property in London, and know that there would be no downside. There would be no investigation, no prosecution. In fact, you will receive the complete opposite kind of treatment. So essentially, we can transform an oligarch into an aristocrat. You get to sort of cosplay, really, as a as an aristocrat. The 21st of July, 2020. At last, the government published Parliament's Russia report. And I should make clear, when it was published, it was published in exactly the form that we had submitted it to the Prime Minister in October 2019, (laughs) and there had been no changes to the text of any kind whatsoever. It described Russian influence in London as the new normal. Its section on the House of Lords said... We noted that a number of members of the House of Lords had business links, interests to Russia, all worked directly for major Russian companies linked to the Russian state, and that these relationships, in our view, needed to be very carefully scrutinised given the potential for the Russian state to exploit them. Ten days later, the government released another document, a list of 36 nominations for life peerages, among them Evgeny Lebedev. When his nomination was criticised, Evgeny wrote a piece for Lord Rodemir's Mail on Sunday, describing the criticism as snobbery and casual racism. He continued, So, to all those who sneer at my Russian background, I say this. Is it not remarkable that the son of a KGB agent and the first-generation immigrant to this country has become such an assimilated and contributing member of British society. On the 17th of December 2020, Evgeny was given his seat for life in the House of Lords. He first wanted his title to be Lord Lebedev of Moscow, 
where he was born. As is customary, the College of Arms asked the Kremlin for its approval of the Moscow part. It wasn't granted. Someone then discovered that there's a Scottish village called Moscow, so Evgeny could have become Lord Lebedev of Moscow in the county of Aberdeenshire. But that seemed too absurd. Then, Evgeny tried Lord Lebedev of Hampton Court, since Stud House sits on its estate. But it wasn't allowed by the College of Arms because Hampton Court is a royal palace and its use in title would have broken with centuries of protocol. Our trusty and well-beloved Evgeny Alexandrovich Lebedev. To the state degree... So he ended up with the name, style and title of... Baron Lebedev of Hampton in our London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames and of Siberia in the Russian Federation. Our Lord gave his maiden speech five months later. Noble Lords, for every one of us it is a moving moment when we join this house. He appeared in a black jacket, black shirt and black tie, his signature thick black beard, perfectly trimmed, full bookshelves behind him, on a video link. And to keep our institutions strong, we're offering diligence and independence as we accept our duties as legislators. We're taking our place in the long line of those who have defended the values of our nation. Aside from his introduction, Evgeny has made only one other appearance in the Lords. He showed up in a dark jacket over a dark top, with no tie and in black jeans, looking one peer said, like a nightclub bouncer. He sat silently and alone as a peer asked an urgent question on food price inflation. He walked out around half an hour later wearing his tinted aviator glasses as peers debated a report from the Science and Technology Committee. On the evidence so far, for Evgeny, the peerage is just a bauble, a gong and not a job. But such patronages aren't new. This is Lord Lexton, an active Conservative peer and the Carlton Club's official historian, who was sent to the Lords by David Cameron. It tends to be the case when peerages are awarded in this particular manner, uh, out of recognition in part to a person's contribution to the country, maybe, but in larger part because of the money that they have spent in ways that um, advance the interests of those, the centre of our affairs, who uh, profit from them. The closer the connection, in other words, between um, the rendering of service by financial contributions to the Tory party or in ways similar to it, the more likely it is that the individual will be seen, but rarely, in the chamber of the House of Lords. There is nothing new about that as a feature of British political life. It goes goes back to the 19th century. And um, The Lords has grown a bit since then. It's now got around 800 members. It's the second largest legislative chamber behind the 3,000 or so member Chinese National People's Congress. And what does a seat in the Lords give you beyond the title? By putting on that crimson robe, Evgeny gets some control over this country's laws for life. 
He acquires yet more status. He gets to walk through the so-called corridors of power and gains gravitas. The more uprooted and cosmopolitan British society becomes, the more these handles of status are grasped. From party boy to peer in 14 years. But here's the thing. Evgeny sits in the Lords as a crossbencher, unaffiliated to a political party, and neither he nor his father have officially donated money to the Conservatives or to Boris Johnson. So it's not your classic case of patronage. Apparently, they're just friends. Well, Mr Johnson doesn't care about very much. Uh, He is perfectly content to see and to promote and undertake himself in the curious, blithe and brazen way in which he conducts um, his life. So it is part of the way in which he treats the world. He is an amiable, jolly person who likes to do what he can for friends. And it wouldn't trouble him in the least because his conscience is not a very deep and marked feature of his personality. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Explosions right across this vast country. last several hours, Russia has invaded Ukraine, advancing on this country in several directions. It started before dawn. Ukraine woke to explosions around the capital, Kiev. A day after Russia invaded Ukraine, Evgeny made his first public statement on the war, in a tweet which read, Orthodox Slavs killing their brethren on a scale not witnessed for centuries an unimaginable tragedy for people of Ukraine and Russia. It's exactly the kind of equivocation that looks like it's saying the right thing in London, but doesn't get offside with Putin. As the pressure on him for a stronger reaction mounted, Evgeny used the front page of his Evening Standard newspaper to write an open letter to President Putin. He wrote... I plead with you to use today's negotiations to bring this terrible conflict in Ukraine to an end. He pleaded with Putin, but he didn't criticize or blame him. His letter is all hedging and fudging. Evgeny described himself as a Russian and British citizen in his open letter. So it's surprising that he didn't use his other platform, the House of Lords. Here we are in the, in the midst of the largest international crisis since the Second World War. And the one Russian-born peer, ennobled just a few months ago, has not sought to utter or to make an appearance. Here's what Lord Cormac, a Conservative peer, thought of the situation. 
but rather a regret that he has not used his unique position to come here and to talk to his colleagues. He made a maiden speech, but he didn't make it in the house. I'm told he made it on his yacht. I don't know whether it's true or not. And my lords, I do think that it is important that those who are ennobled should come here and play a proper part. The Lebedevs, more than even the major league oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska and Roman Abramovich, have come to represent the fix in which Londongrad now finds itself. The British government has frozen the UK assets of those major oligarchs. It even sanctioned Chelsea Football Club, while Roman Abramovich owned it. But what can it do with the Lebedevs, who over years and years worked to integrate themselves not just into Britain's economy, but its society and politics? Boris Johnson denies that he intervened to override security concerns in the appointment of the Russian oligarch to the House of Lords. The deputy Labour leader, Angela Rayner, uh, joins us now. The government has even refused to disclose the security advice it received against Afghani's nomination. Uh, what do you think went on behind the scenes? Well, this is a problem we don't know because the Prime Minister, you know, is, had accusations from his senior advisor that he intervened. The Commission rejected the peerage for Levadev, and it's clear that the Prime Minister overruled that against our national security advice. So that's why we're calling for that advice to be published so that we can get to the bottom of it. It refused to do so even when Parliament voted for it. The government said, with no hint of irony, that disclosing the information would harm the integrity of the Lord's appointments process. And what can it do about Evgeny's father, Alexander? Over this podcast series, we have heard and seen how he still supports Putin, despite his claims of being an anti-corruption campaigner and a liberal. Having been criticising Kremlin for years and sacrificing most of my business. There's a payback for my investigations regarding the Russian fraudulent bankers. The western side of the equator is a bit in love of the Russian dirty money. To my dream, which is taking on the global corruption. The lady protests too much. Just ten days after the government rejected Parliament's vote to publish the security advice on Evgeny, Canada sanctioned Alexander. Its Global Affairs Department added him to a list of other individuals and companies that, the Canadian government said, directly enabled Vladimir Putin's senseless war in Ukraine and bear responsibility for the pain and suffering of the people of Ukraine. I asked the department whether it worked with Britain, a fellow NATO member, on Alexander's designation. It said... Canada works in coordination with like-minded countries to assess potential targets that would most impact Putin and his enablers. And added, Canada continues to work with our international allies and partners and is monitoring the situation closely. The British government has said that it came to a different judgment on Alexander, but perhaps sensing the instability of Boris Johnson's reign, Alexander's cutting his exposure. He quit his role on the Independent and on the Lebedev Foundation, which is being wound up. Evgeny remains here. His costume drama has taken him from a midsummer Russian fantasy in white tie to a House of Lords ordination 
in crimson velvet robes. His is a completely British story. The papers, the parties, the peerage. The country now finds itself at a moment of decision. When the dust settles, it'll be really interesting if the government actually follows through and forces a sort of downsizing of this butlering business. You know, you've got to understand Britain isn't just butler to the Russians, it's butler to the world. The money doesn't just come from Russia. It, it comes from everywhere. The way the Azeri money comes here, or Ukrainian money, or Malaysian money, or Nigerian money, it comes in the same way. It's spent in the same way. The problem is so much bigger than just Russian money. Britain can go on with its butler to the world role, swapping Russia for some other source of funds, or it can change. Back in episode one, I asked myself some questions. What did Britain do to itself as it opened its doors to Russian money? Was Britain really prepared to ignore assassinations if they got in the way of that money? And how does this change Britain's national myth? Britain has been open to the world's crooked elite and their money since it lost its empire in the 1960s and needed to find a new role for itself. Before the Russians began buying up Kensington, Arabs were buying up Mayfair. And when the Russians leave, a new group will arrive. They will follow the same shopping route, a mansion or an estate, PR agents and MPs, galleries and charities, maybe a football club or newspaper. But there is something qualitatively different about the Russians. They were strategic. It was less a flood of money and more an influence operation. It was an operation born of Russia's unique oligarchy, where billionaires are agents of the Kremlin. It was an operation conducted so ruthlessly that those oligarchs weren't just welcomed, but celebrated. When the Russians arrived, it was sort of fascinating. Nobody cared about the Arabs coming. But the Russians sort of gave a kind of lift. They just seemed to inject a whole new excitement in a funny way into English life at the time. Russian money prized open the doors of Britain's establishment wider than they had ever been opened before. And the sums were enormous. So big that, yes, assassinations were brushed aside. Bigger, in fact, than we even know. Across Britain, Russians accused of corruption or with Kremlin ties bought at least £1.5 billion worth of property. And that's an underestimate. We don't know what the real number is because Britain provides secrecy services that obscure it. Controls and checks were dismantled in Britain by Britain itself to allow this money in. And the country's doors remain open. There's nothing really stopping any other source of illicit money coming forward. The sanctions of Russian assets after Russia's invasion of Ukraine are just that, sanctions of Russian assets. Britain's grubbiness, its role as a secretive jurisdiction, is so at odds with its public image of respectability and propriety, the image it sells, that it can be hard to see. It is, after all, a national myth like any other. It's a myth that breaks down in the story of Alexander 
and Evgeny Lebedev. Thank you for listening to Londongrad, how the Lebedevs partied their way to power. This series was reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia, additionally reporting by James Wilson and Kim Dara. The producer was Katie Gunning, the sound designers are Tom Kinsella and Carla Patella. The editor is Kerry Thomas. If you're not already a Tortoise member, I'd love to invite you to join to get early access to my investigations, to all our slow and considered journalism, as well as invites to exclusive newsroom events. To join Tortoise as a member, use my code PAUL50 for half-price membership for £50 a year. Visit tortoisemedia.com slash Londongrad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.